This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and the shoulders I stand upon today belong to Neil Kulkarne and Taylor Parks. Yeah, hello. Don't you think we should soup these up a bit? We, we deserve hey. more, more professional introductions. You say, uh... Taylor Parks, author of 2001, an inventor of the communication satellite. <laughs> now in retreat in Sri Lanka, he ponders the riddles of this and other worlds, harmful to aquatic life with long-lasting effects. No, let's carry on doing what we normally do. <laughs> and we should have catchphrases. I, I might go with, nice to see you, to see you, cunt. It's <laughs> a good one and at the end one of us should say and it's good night from me and then the other one should say and it's good night from that cunt <laughs> and then we both say good night q starfield are you going on chat gpt for your biog or something because <laughs> yeah i was outraged that mine says i'm from wolverhampton man really <laughs> yeah. mine says that death. i wrote for sounds melody maker and the enemy and vice fuck that <laughs> Mine says I prefer looking at paintings from behind. <laughs> I don't know where they got that from. Anyway, boys, put your hands on my belly and I'll say, do you want to fill me with all the pop and interesting things that have occurred of late? I've been doing a bit of work. I've been working with Rudy from AR Kane. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Sleeve notes for their latest box set. Fuck me. It's been fun. But A.R. Kane were ad copywriters, you know what I mean? Mm. So preparing copy for them was somewhat nerve-wracking. I've been um, decorating my house, trying to control my cat. I'm having a nice burn-up every night, though, in my newly swept chimney. Oh, oh God, I've turned into such a fire wanker <laughs> about that. Or conflagration cunt, if you'd rather. <laughs> but um, anyway, far away from such middle-class bougie concerns, I've also spent possibly the strangest night I have in many a year. Oh, really? Yeah, a night that I'm not sure I can talk about with full candour, because I don't want to wake up with my tongue buried on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I went to a Masonic ladies' night. Oh, yes, you did, yes. It was a bizarre an odd glimpse of how the elites live right with a tombola thrown in as well um <laughs> did you win no it's fucking fixed wasn't it, no, of course it coppers was. in the room <laughs> i mean as you can imagine it was very like a cool in the gang ladies night mm. i mean it wasn't a night special everywhere from new york to hollywood this was in warwick right. a town that i've never got along with not just because of warwick uni planting its ugly snobbish presence in Coventry but also like most medieval towns it's kind of wonky and wrong and not fit for purpose oh uh, yes and the bathroom in my hotel was so misshapen and small I had to sit with my legs at 10am just to have a decent dump oh no <laughs> I should perhaps explain how I ended up at a Masonic mm. ladies night um, but obviously I'm going to have to protect names so that I can continue on Chart Music Podcast and as a teacher with my vocal cords still effective <laughs> so 
My dear friend, Name Redacted, is partner to a chap called Name Redacted. Mm. This fella, he happens to have been a grand worshipful master of the local masons for the past year as it combines his loves of dressing up and ridiculous ceremony mm. and, and charity work. Ooh, that sounds a bit familiar. <laughs> Does he go for really long walks as well? <laughs> no, he doesn't. Good. No, he doesn't. He doesn't jingle jingle. But, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, my dear friend, as partner to Grand Worship Former Master, is therefore lady name redacted for that year. And, and commensurate with that role is her responsibility to put together a ladies' night mm. in which, you know, money's raid and speeches are made. and, and Get a stripper on. Uh, yeah, and gavels are banged. Um, she invited me and, and a few cov mates along as moral support and as a sort of general buttress against the sheer weirdness of the evening. Mm. Um, I mean, we were, of course, all determined at some point to stumble down corridors we shouldn't have, you know, and, and chance upon the summoning of Osmodius or something. But mm. <laughs> truth be told, as soon as we stepped into the Masonic Hall, we were whisked upstairs and we were straight into this kind of bizarre devil rides out style furnishings in this room there was a, a magnificent checkerboard black and white rug that carpeted the room Ooh. and we patiently waited for it to turn into a walling vortex that mm. would tumble us into a netherworld of arcane occultism it didn't oh. instead a nice chap called bill who like all the masons there was identifiable by his bow tie and evening dress got us some champagne and we looked at the bizarre aprons and symbols and thrones not daring really to ask what any of it meant oh. um yeah, it was weird. And then it was downstairs for a three-course meal and the speeches, which was all kind of normal, apart from a couple of Were things. Were the serving wenches? <laughs> no, there weren't, actually. Oh, it was ladies' night, wasn't it? Yeah, it was ladies' night. Were there any kind of, like, waiters in aprons, and then you turn around, you could see their bare arse? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, oh, although we did crap. leave early. Maybe that's how the night went. I don't know. We were on top table, man. It was great. And we noticed when we sat down that the table had a massive gavel on it. Right. Kind of the heft and weight of a hefty sofa leg, but sort of shaped like a dunce's cap. And we started to notice as the ceremony started that the Grand Worshipful Master was able to bang this on the table with this kind of shocking loudness and reverberance. Ooh. And then every other table would answer with their own gavel. Right. It's like a dub style effect, really. <laughs> um, we should unhinge things more. There were speeches, there was this raffle, which was a total fucking stitch up. What was the top Only prize? Won. A child's heart. <laughs> I think it was one of those horrible days where you go away and drive a fast car or something. Ugh. Yeah, it was a fix, that, that raffle. It had that real West Midland serious crime squad feel <laughs> in terms of corruption. But basically, I mean, the entire room looked populated with bent coppers. I was one of only about two non-white people in the room. Right. But um, my suit, cravat and spats meant that I passed for civilised. <laughs> the, the most bizarre moment, though, we had to toast the king Ugh. and also sing the national anthem. Oh, for fuck's sake, Neil. <laughs> I know I did it as well, craven and pathetic as I am. I, I, as a Republican-minded person, I should have kept my mouth shut. Yeah. But, you know, this is the power of these things. And and the night ended with me sort of boogieing to Luther Vandross, and I requested the call in the gang song. Of course. But it was very telling for me the next day that we, me, me and my girlfriend, we had a little stroll around Warwick Castle. Uh, my girlfriend asked the Grand Worshipful Master, who we were giving a lift back to Cov, you know, about the castle. And he was full of kind of, oh, well, you know, we do a barbecue every year. You should come and, and we do a tour. <laughs> That's how they fucking get you, innit? Yes. But I think it will be my last Masonic encounter because mm. um, 
looking around that room, I just thought, you know, if I put myself about right here, I may well not only be able to speed through 50 mile per hour zones on the motorway, I could also probably get embroiled in Warwick's biggest swinging scene. Oh, so, yes. A very strange night, a brush with the Masons, which uh, I'm hoping will never happen again. Did you win the day driving the fast car? No, I didn't. I was going to say, I was going to ask you if it's got a sunroof for the antlers to poke out the side. <laughs> <laughs> no it was a total fix man it, 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 you know because the, the the masons they were identifiable because they all, were all in sort of evening dress you know like black bow tie and all of that yeah and they were the only fuckers going up and winning any prizes <laughs> whereas us auslanders we yeah we were just sort of cold shouldered in that regard but uh, an insight that i don't want to repeat because i suspect that room upstairs with the thrones and the compasses and all of that that's where the real sick shit goes on that they don't put on when outsiders are in the building you know taylor um well i can't compete with that no. i've just been <laughs> cooking my coronation quiche <laughs> mm, lovely broad beans and tarragon mm. <laughs> makes you feel so proud to be british doesn't it <laughs> truly a quiche to put the great back into great scott that looks disgusting <laughs> Fuck it out. anyway i paid a servant to make mine i was too busy working on my black exploitation film about one of the old ladies from faulty towers <laughs> working title they call me miss tibbs <laughs> and i know it's irresponsible putting a joke that obscure this close to the top of the show but it's all i can manage this month i sound old because I've been feeling old. At this point, it's only the fact that I'm not two years off my age in defiance of the pandemic that's keeping me under 50. Can you believe it? <laughs> I've, I've reached that age where you're supposed to relax a bit, slow down and mm. enjoy the fruits of your labour, uh, which in my case are three crab apples and a lime. <laughs> and I'm not expecting to get rich poking holes in things, even though a lot of people who do it far less well are millionaires. And I appreciate that there are those many, many chart music listeners who allow me to sleep with their wives or girlfriends in front of them out of sheer admiration and gratitude. <laughs> Tears in their eyes. They say, Sir, I don't mind that she's going to go with you while I watch because it means I get to meet you, which is heartening. <laughs> but apart from that, what do I get? Just this sense that it's all my own fault. So bear with me. It's like being an actor who's also a dwarf in 1970. Like you sat there <laughs> waiting for your phone to ring, and like every three years your agent calls, and he's like, oh, yeah, good news, we found another part for you. What? Oh, yes, actually, it is playing an eccentric evil millionaire's personal butler. How did you guess that? <laughs> uh, but this is how it is now. It's like I've been showing my dog at Crufts, and in the obedience round, it leapt up and bit the judge's throat out. You know, it's not mm. going to be oh, well, maybe next year. Right? I've set my <laughs> expectations now. But I've been keeping busy. I was out oh, good. the other week watching a, a live on-stage interview with some of the old composers from KPM, the library music company. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of whom was John Cameron and one of whom was Alan Parker. That is to say, the co-composer of and guitarist on the piece of music the Pop Craze Youngsters were hearing just a moment ago. Oh, brother. brother. By CCS. Ooh. Lovely to be in the same room as them. Mm. Although, I didn't mention anything about this podcasting case they wanted money <laughs> yes um, well played, Taylor. Thank fog. 
<laughs> what else? Oh, it was my birthday last month. Oh. Or this month, as it used to be called. I can't <laughs> keep up with this changing times. No major cause for celebration, except that I didn't die, which Yay. is something I'm quite paranoid about, dying on my own birthday. Mm. Because aside from making me something of a party pooper, mm. uh, as though there were any party, <laughs> it would render me utterly predictable in death. Because it means that every single person who looked at my gravestone would say exactly the same thing, mm. apart from good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> or he could afford a gravestone then. <laughs> yeah. Now, you and Shakespeare, Taylor, that's what I'd say. Oh, and also, I've been listening to this great podcast called Chart Music. Oh, really? It's really long, but you don't have to listen to it all in one go. <laughs> I love the Grange Hill bit in the last episode. Yes. And I'm grateful that you put in that completely true story about me in the mid-90s. Yeah. Encountering the just say no era Grange Hill cast in the green room of the word where they were indeed running around looking very animated mm. and mm. singing to each other just say yes yeah. it's all accurate but I should add this detail the most tragic bit was Melissa Wilkes Melissa Grand Prix Wilkes oh, yes. um, mm. aka Jackie Zamo's girlfriend that's pathetic Zamo um, first of all she'd played no part in that just say yes horseplay just as she'd seemingly played no part in the just say no record Mm. but i saw her standing at the exit door of teddington lock studios as the audience were filing out saying thank you thanks for coming to every single person as they went out as though it was her show fucking hell (laughs) i remember feeling a bit of a chill how polite yeah but she wasn't even 30 at the time and looking at that it was horrible she was like a psychologically broken relic you know it's like well that's that two defining moments upstaged by zamo and his clockwork orange eye makeup to show that he's on heroin (laughs) and upstaged by dickie davis saying cocksucker instead of cup soccer by mistake (laughs) and that's it right that sheepdog that slid down the hill because it had worms while that bloke was singing (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> yes there you go hope you had fun <laughs> melissa you're out the door mm. stand aside please here comes lucinda rhodes flirty to take your place it's terrible melissa wilkes doesn't even have a wikipedia page oh no not even one as depressing as that of the genuinely likable lee mcdonald mm. aka junkie kid zamo yes whose wikipedia page lists his profession as actor comma locksmith yes (laughs) although speaking of grange hill you know the tube station grange hill yeah it's out on a loop on the far eastern end of the central line Mm. right essex Mm -hmm. borders middle of nowhere and it's nothing to do with the tv show it's not set there it's just a coincidence Mm. but how fucking inescapably tedious that connection must be if you actually lived there yeah and i was sat on the tube the other day looking at it thinking Imagine if you were the station master of Grange Hill Underground Station. (laughs) You'd feel like you had no choice but to take over the tannoy system and instead of the spoken announcements, insist on just playing Chicken Man by Alan Hawkshaw. The one true Grange Hill theme over and over on a loop all day and night, endlessly, at deafening volume so that passengers just wouldn't be able to escape it, whatever they did. Or just lob sausages on 
on forks at people as they come out. <laughs> yeah, I'll replace the ticket barriers with big sausages on forks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hire a 15-year-old with a quiff to hang around the station yes. bullying people, <laughs> stealing their fare. And money. you could have Mr. Bronson going, You! Boy, mind the gap! <laughs> yeah, but the important thing would be the music blasting out 24 hours a day, mm. making everyone smile. Yeah. So like, even just people passing through the station couldn't hear themselves think because of the sound of it. Until eventually the top brass would call you in for a dressing down and the bloke says, look, this has to stop. We've had thousands of complaints from commuters several hundred of them from a locksmith's down the road <laughs> just please stop playing that music over and over again all day but you'd have to stand firm and say no i'm sorry this is just the way it has to be mm. until eventually they'd say right that's it we warned you you are no longer the station master of grange hill station you're being moved to baker street hope it goes well <laughs> well i have something that's very pop and extremely interesting so mark this down right now in your pop craze diary saturday september the 16th 2023 king's place king's cross london chart music comes alive and returns to the london podcast festival fucking yes (laughs) same venue hall one the big one little bit later in the day at half past four but don't you worry there'll be plenty of time to link up with us and the pop craze universe afterwards i.e get fucking k and i can exclusively reveal right now that the lineup will be me taylor parks and neil called carney oh yes pop craze youngsters teammate tv land in the house if you will yeah yeah there's, no, there's none of that you know face for radio hiding no more is no there, man i'm gonna have to rouge up <laughs> Fuck it, it'll be the first time i've ever met you in person now no, it's mad isn't it al that, that is, that is ridiculous man it's like a long distance relationship is finally going to be consummated in front of hopefully 600 people Indeed. after years Indeed. and years of neil asking you to forward some money so that he could come and I see know. you yeah. <laughs> Now, as these words are coming out of my mouth, I don't know how much it's going to be, but I can reveal that the Pop Craze Patreons are going to be hit off with a 20% discount. So if you're not one of those people yet, maybe now is the time to get some tips in this G-string right here. They're fucking good, aren't they, Taylor, these uh, these live shows? Yeah, we, we were treated very kindly. Yes, we were. Nice, yeah. Wait till you see the green room they have at King's Place, Neil. Fucking hell, all the best crisps. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell. You're not supposed to say this in front of the, front of the <laughs> listeners. But yeah, it's a great opportunity for you, the listener, to commune with your fellow pop craze youngsters. <laughs> and it's a great opportunity for me to get shot of a load of fucking bummer dog t-shirts yeah. that have been clogging up my back room for the past year. Do you think it would be profitable to try and sell a t-shirt that didn't feature a silhouette image of a dog buggering a small child? Yeah, I know. <laughs> 2022 wasn't ready for that t-shirt. No. I think 2023 is more than ready for the bummer dog t-shirt. <laughs> Let's talk about the really important people mm, at the mm. moment. And those people are the brand new batch of pop craze Patreons. And in the $5 section this week, we have Gordon Kennedy. 
Thomas Dowding, Neil Major, Saps, Paul Whitelaw, Jezza Peeps, Robin Goad, Matthew Kendrick, Pie Museum, Foul Play, Ash Preston, Matthew Reitz, Paul Thorpe, Matt D, Lee Kyle, OPEC Dreams, Brian Oblivion, Lee Kremen, Sean Moran, and Wendy Bort comes in. Oh, thank you, babies. <laughs> and in the $3 section, we have Philip Bedford, Chris Dowding, Brendan Parsons, and Rodri Lewis. God, we fucking fancy the arse off you. <laughs> oh, and Martin Riley, you nudged it up, didn't you, you naughty boy? Thank you so much much <laughs> and as well as keeping chart music alive and getting the latest episodes in full we are any advert ramble days before anyone else the pop craze patreons get to tinker and a tanker and a fiddle and a whiddle and a diddle with the all new chart music top 10 are you ready for it boys yes hit the fucking music We've lost sex under Artex and the two Ronnies clash, which means three up, two down, two non-movers, one new entry and one re-entry. Last week's number three dropped seven places to number ten, Noel Edmonds' wank fantasy. <laughs> up one place from number ten to number nine, Jeff Sex. It's another one place jump to number eight, but here comes Jism. Re-entry at number seven for my fucking car. Uh. And last week's number four drops two places to number six, Eric Smallshaw of Eccles. Into the top five and no change at five for the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Last week's number six. This week's number four. Bummer dog. Into the top three and it's a two-place drop for the Birmingham Pistrol. This week's number two, no change for the provisional URURA, which means... Britain's number one. This week's highest new entry and the brand new chart music number one, Ghostface Scylla. <laughs> oh, what a chart, boys. Fucking hell. The pop crazy youngsters, they, they don't like stasis, man. No, they like man. change. Yeah, it's exciting. They live it? for kicks. <laughs> so, yeah, Ghostface Scylla. I don't even want to talk about what that sounds like. <laughs> Just had it in my head while I've been lying in bed for the past fortnight. Fucking hell, man. <laughs> but a couple of pop-crazed youngsters have alerted me, chaps, to a possible Eric Smallshaw sighting. Have you heard about this? Oh, my days, really. A karaoke singer in an episode of Cracker doing When the Saints Go Marching In. Someone pointed out that the, the way the singer phrases the, the word number <laughs> is extremely similar to uh, Eric, but uh, yeah, yeah you, you don't think so, Tony. No, Eric's influence spread far and wide, <laughs> right? It's a bit it's a bit like saying I heard a band, it's the singer who's singing just like Mick Jagger, was it the Rolling Stones? No, 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 no. It's 100% not him. Oh, well. 
Never mind. <laughs> so, if you want to get in on all this thrilling excitement, you know what you do, pop craze youngsters. You take them fingers over to the keyboard. You tap out patreon.com slash chart music and you pledge and you pledge and you pledge if you can. It's a sound investment, I would say. Uh, so, this episode, pop craze youngsters, takes us all the way back to March the 19th, 1981. Nothing particularly special or landmark about this episode, but I can tell you right now that a lot of the old friends we've made along the way during our chart music odyssey will be swinging by. But Mm. also, hey, we've got a few surprises in store. Just put your head round the door. (laughs) Also, chaps, we're a a good nine months into the reign of Michael Earl by now, so this is an excellent opportunity for an examination, an ultrasound, if you will, of Mm. the difficult pregnancy of the yellow hurl era because the reformations have not kicked in yet have they oh god yeah i mean it does feel this episode for me still quite 70s yeah 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 there are some old familiars here but there's also some new enemies for us as well But, um, but, but truth be told i mean looking at the charts they still don't really feel entirely colonised by, by new pop music. There's still a lot mm. of dinosaurs there. Uh. And in terms of this episode, it, it's certainly sort of old pop and older pop people who are kind of winning in a way. Um, mm. Top of the Pops could never entirely commit to new music in a way, you know, a show like The Tube could later. But I mm. don't think Hurl has yet realised that, that new bands are more exciting yeah. in a sort of classic Top of the Pops way than their older competitors. So consequently, I found this episode lurches between sort of variety and pop probably in a way that would have angered me at the time it's clear here that while the 80s are gagging to kick on in Mm. certain places the 70s aren't quite ready to let go are they no absolutely not they're clinging on with their scaly tendrils yeah there's really a lot of old lags on this episode (laughs) (laughs) from the top of the pots from 1981 my god yeah deep in the booming heart of either the finest or at least the second finest half decade ever for the british charts you know mm. full of young spunk and piss mm. and basically half the acts on this episode are over 30 <laughs> and have been mm. recording since the 60s or early 70s but it's yeah. quite interesting because unlike in the later 80s when all these older guys like all souped up with the modern aor sound were a fucking plague on the charts and mm. essentially all the same uh, what you got here is a bunch of oldens creeping out from under the blankets now that punk is over, mm, yeah. looking mm. around and trying to work out how to respond to the new decade. And so it's different in every case, right? It might mean horrifying self-consciousness or a new lease of life, or in one case here, hang on, didn't I invent half of this? Well, I don't do mm. that shit anymore. And <laughs> we get examples of all of these tonight. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not like mm. 1986 with Steve Winwood delivering another soulful pop ballad or Elton John returning with a new album described as his finest work since two low for zero <laughs> you know it's a business as usual in 1981 these old fuckers have got a dilemma because yeah. they still feel like they have to justify their existence within mm. pop and mm. most of them seem to be addressing it with varying degrees of success so even when the music isn't yeah. brilliant or even bearable it's worth discussing 
Yeah, mm. yeah, and, and the highs are quite high, but the lows are really low on this yeah, episode. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. low as crocodile piss. Yeah, I mean, it is a reminder that golden ages are quite often peppered with straight up golden showers, and, <laughs> and the, the, some of the older acts here, fuck me. I mean, there's no other word but shameful for some of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it's always the same, isn't it? It's always easy to fall into that sort of BBC Four bullshit. That hey, everything was changing culturally, but <laughs> like, I watched an episode of Summertime Special the other night the, the BBC Saturday Night Variety Spectacular from August 1981 still a flagship light entertainment programme and it's oh, indistinguishable yes. from 1971 and mm. in a lot of ways from 1951 um, <laughs> and any way you can tell it's not is that the title sequence features members of the A-team not the real A-team <laughs> oh this, my shame this perma-smiling song and dance troupe of pleasant face nothings in cheap nylon t-shirts with their names printed on the front and ice skater trousers right who come on regularly <laughs> to pad out this grim 45 minutes until you're longing for the young generation to hobble in <laughs> their zimmer frames and headbutt them in the bollocks but Anyway, at the start, you see all the members of the A-team larking around in an overcast and freezing Brighton seafront. Um, I mean, the very first <laughs> shot of this programme is the word summertime special superimposed over a helicopter shot of a marina in the pissing rain. <laughs> and then you see them all leaping about in their T-shirts, pretending not to be cold on the beach, um, mm. giving a kid a donkey ride. Uh, buying candy floss, purchasing a lobster from a seafood shop, uh, <laughs> stroking a police horse, all those things you do on holiday, right? Mm. <laughs> and the only way that you can tell that you're even looking at a time that's within our lifespan is when one of the girls picks up a giant novelty lollipop which says, kiss me quick, from a revolving <laughs> lollipop stand and pretends to lick it without first taking the plastic off. And you can see the other two lollipops on the stand and one of them says, Charles Diana Royal Wedding and the other one says, I like pussy, with a picture of a cat. <laughs> I guess nobody knew what it meant. Mrs Slocum would. <laughs> And so this program is hosted by Rod Hull and Emu. Right. Um, a, of course. A bully and his fig leaf. Um, and <laughs> features guests uh, such as Shaking Stevens, um, the Irish easy listening vocal trio The Bachelors, right. as hot and sexy as the frozen peas which share their name, <laughs> um, the Birmingham born easy listening. And, and as mushy as the peas that go in tens. <laughs> yeah, they're dressed in a hundred shades of brown that most complex <laughs> of colours. Um, the Birmingham-born, easy-listening chanteuse, Maggie Moon, who's Fuck got... Oh, don't, don't bring Maggie Moon's name up in front of me, Taylor. I go all red. So she turns up. She's got a hair-sprayed-up cloud of copper-coloured hair, uh, a slinky ankle-length black lace dress slit to the thigh and far too much pink lipstick. She looks oh, like she's God. at her gangster husband's funeral. Mm. <laughs> but unbelievably, she was in her 20s. I've got to break oh. in there, Taylor, before you can carry on. Um, a couple of years hence from this episode of Summertime Special, Maggie Moon was the guest singer on Name That Tune. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there watching it with my mum and my dad. Mm. And she came on 
wearing what sounds like the same outfit that you've just described yeah. there. I remember my mum just tutting and just says, oh, I bet she hasn't got any knickers on. <laughs> and I was absolutely overcome with lust and had to go upstairs and do something about it. <laughs> so there we go. That is my second most embarrassing uh, masturbatory story. <laughs> Anyway, she's uh, one of the guests on Summertime Special, along with Irish all-girl, easy-listening vocal trio Sheba, of whom more later, believe it or not, um, and the uh, whip-cracking Arabian Nights-themed acrobatics act Kazbek and Zari, who are very impressive at what they do but it's a bit like the boring bit at a fetish club where everyone has to stand still and watch an act (laughs) and throughout the show over and over again the a-team the a-team i see the a-team yeah they they had to appear on summertime special for the crime they didn't commit (laughs) (laughs) until the grand finale of this program which has a a huge studio audience right there in the place is a 10 minute Mm. item on film featuring song and dance production numbers shot in the rolls royce factory in goodwood introduced by rod hull and his fake bird as a place where we can still be proud of the slogan british made summertime special salutes rolls royce (laughs) and it's literally just these grinning inadequates leaping about in a fucking gray factory full of exhaust pipes and windscreen wipers yeah all dressed in pink and baby blue to uh, a medley of easy listening versions of appropriate tunes like grease lightning pick up the pieces interrupting production at a time when the british motor industry really needed to pull its finger out um all in the cut with close-ups of people in brown stores coats and overalls soldering things and fitting washers (laughs) in that pale gray light saturday evening prime time um and then at the Mm. end they pile into finished rolls royces to the sound of the a-team singing silver lady obviously (laughs) and they drive out through the factory gates triumphantly of course and that's the end you think and there's about a minute of shots of the studio audience in rapturous applause Mm. But then they cut back to Rod Hull and he says, before we leave Rolls-Royce, let's have a look at what more than a million pounds worth of motor cars looks like. Cue another minute of film showing 18 brand new Rolls-Royces, clearly not actually being driven by members of the A-team, who I guess couldn't be (laughs) trusted, rolling into a field and assembling themselves into a giant double R, which is then filmed from a helicopter it's a fucking advert it's Mm. a prime time bbc advert for a product way out of the price range of anybody in the studio audience or indeed watching this lower class bilge at home right a super high-end product whose image can surely only be tarnished by association with rod hull and the Mm. a-team and the whole thing stinks right this was shortly after Mm. rolls royce was sold to the engineering and aviation group vickers and while i can't Mm. pinpoint any particular significance there i bet you any money that's significant somehow some fucking spiff mm. fool in a wood panelled office sitting behind a huge phone and a massive glass ashtray calling in a favor but the reason i bring this up 
is that a number of things I just mentioned will recur later. So more of yes. this when the time comes. But also, just to mention the strange pickled feeling of that programme, which was absolutely in the mainstream of 1981, but oh, feels yeah. decades older. Like something mm. which should have been swept away by the Luftwaffe, you know what I mean? Mm. Like And punk. Yeah, and there it is, front and centre, Saturday night primetime. <laughs> a harrowing watch. Alas... No footage of the after-show party when Maggie Moon drank two <laughs> bottles of martini and punched a police horse in the face. But this is bad enough. And this was the main reality of 1981, right? I'm here to tell you young people, it was. It's like a rule with years, right? You know, if you go on a dating app and someone's got five pictures up, the worst one will be the best likeness of what that person looks like in real mm. life. Well, it's the same. The worst pop cultural artifacts from a particular time are usually the best representation of the reality of being alive at that time as a working or lower middle class English person. Yeah. And this is how I remember 1981, mm. despite since then the gradual creep of this idea that hey even your dad looked like a member of visage right no 1981 was more like 1971 than it was like 1991 which is why the stuff that we now think looks so 1981 looked fucking Mm. crazy at the time because it's that way where you are at that time a lot Mm. of the people on these bbc4 documentaries talking about the early 80s weren't in places like we were actually watching <laughs> yeah. shit like this but maggie moon i'd completely forgotten about her yeah. real brummy sultriness mm. up there with lisa dominique and um you know connie <laughs> <laughs> anyway seeing as you asked um my most embarrassing masturbation story happened in early <laughs> 1983 in my bedroom just before school was about to start while i was watching tv am on my portable mm. now chaps this was the era of ridiculously tight stay pressed trousers and i was paranoid that i get a bonk on at school and it got noticed and i get absolutely shamed up so i was in the habit round about that time of enjoying myself in the gentlemanly manner you know to get it out the way for the day get the poison out exactly taylor so you know i fished me copy of men only from under the mattress and proceeded to set about me sen and when i was at the i know karida stage Mm. i could hear my sister thumping up the stairs screaming and shouting and carrying on and i was absolutely terrified she was going to burst into my room Mm. so i got up to throw myself against the door and uh (laughs) accidentally ejaculated over wincy willis's face (laughs) yeah (laughs) fucking hell so i just Uh. want to say if you're out there wincy i am so fucking sorry even now 40 years later and i swear to you it was completely unintentional and (laughs) you were just collateral damage dog it could have been anyone but it could have been mike morris which doesn't bear thinking about at all so um yeah let's move on did you ever find out if maggie moon was wearing knickers oh god knows i bet emu knew yeah the only way to find out would have been uh i stand neath the maggie moon <laughs> hesitating onward In the news, 
Ronnie Biggs has been maced in his home in Rio de Janeiro by three kidnappers who claim to be former members of the SAS, who then stuff him into a canvas bag with four carrier handles and is currently whereabouts unknown. While the media speculates that it's a publicity stunt for his forthcoming autobiography, it turns out to be a legitimate attempt to abduct him to a place where he can be extradited to Britain. In three days' time, a yacht containing Biggs goes out of control off the coast of Barbados and all four men are rescued. And Barbados tells Britain to fuck off when they request an extradition and he's returned to Brazil. You lucky bastard. (laughs) The Social Democratic Party estimates that they will have 14 MPs when they officially start next Thursday. All Labour MPs who have resigned and defected to the SDP. They would end the year with 27 former Labour MPs and a Tory. Sir Peter Heyman, the former British diplomat and intelligence officer who was revealed in Parliament last week as the unnamed member of the paedophile information exchange who had left a packet of child grot on a bus but was let off by the police, has been found in a hotel in Normandy with his wife trying to keep the fuck out of it. Residents in his home village of Checkendom, Oxfordshire, have been doorstopped by the papers and they're remarkably okay with it all. Who are we to judge him, says a woman in the street. We'll decide for ourselves when the fuss has blown over. (laughs) Different times. Two workers at NASA are killed when they accidentally walk into an area containing pure nitrogen, while the Soviet Union announced that they've successfully tested a killer satellite that shot the fuss out of another satellite over Eastern Europe. The Bank of England have put out the first £50 notes since the war. They've got Christopher Wren on the back. Liverpool and Ipswich cruise into the semi-finals of the European and UEFA Cups after beating CSKA Sofia and Saint-Etienne respectively, but West Ham get knocked out by Dynamo Tbilisi and Newport County are dispatched by Carl Zajena in the UEFA Cup. But the big news this week is in the Sunday Mirror. Headline, Band, Sickest Group in Pop. A top punk rock group have been banned from college concerts because of their vile stage antics. The chart-busting group, who call themselves Splodgeness Abounds, <laughs> use the seven heads of pigs and oxen in their act. It sounds sick. And that's what many people feel after seeing them perform. After a recent concert at Thames Polytechnic in London, cleaners were horrified to find the group had left behind the rotting remains of their gruesome stage props. Now college officials have banned further concerts and even the students themselves are so disgusted they have advised other colleges not to book the group. But 23-year-old Max Splodge, leader of the group that shot up the charts with a record called Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps, is unrepentant. I'm not surprised the cleaners found the heads, he bragged. They probably smelt them before they could see them. They were a bit maggoty when we left them. Then Max spoke in loving detail about the group's ideas of entertainment. Our showstopper used to be oral sex, but we've cut that out because we no longer have a girl in the group, he said. 
Now we buy pigs and oxen heads from the market and use them in sexual movements or as ventriloquist dummies. Then we throw them into the crowd. It's just a bit of a giggle. Know what I mean? (laughs) If you don't find that very funny, there's always what Max calls the group's bingo interval. One of the group lies on the floor and spits pig's eyes out of his mouth like the numbered balls in bingo. (laughs) It's sort of Kelly's eye with a difference. Student Union President Simon Hubbard said it was sickening. We hope we have seen and heard the last of this group. Alas, not quite. When Moronic Max heard of the ban, he retaliated in typical style by sending the college two more heads through the post. Oh, <laughs> shocking behaviour. Disgraceful. But, I mean, everyone's just going to be waiting around, aren't they, for two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please? So they've got to do something. I think people would be more offended nowadays if they did uh, two little boys again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why they didn't just let the music do the talking. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Pauline Black of The Selector. On the cover of Smash Hits, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. On the cover of Record Mirror, Francis Rossi of Quo in a very tight bomber jacket and tie, leaning against a wall with a fag on. Oh, they're still relevant. (laughs) The number one LP in the UK at the moment, Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. Over in America, the number one single is Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. And the number one LP is High Infidelity by Oreo Speedwagon, which, of course, was the number one LP in America for 15 weeks on non-consecutive occasions, broken up for three weeks by something a bit more punchy and vibrant, Paradise Theatre by Styx. (laughs) Oh, America. (laughs) So, me boys, what were we doing in March of 1981? Well... I would have been eight, mm. a year into wearing glasses. I'm adjusted to that. Second year at junior school. I mean, the only thing I genuinely remember about this time is that I was entering into a, a key moment for any young person. I think my, my first fountain pen. Ooh, oh, get oh, you. Yes. I long looked longingly at the massive array of quinks oh, yeah. in um, Midland Educational. Coventry's one-stop shop for all your stationary needs, but... Now I was finally given the chance to actually write with a fountain pen, load up cartridges in that shotgun way, Ooh. and, of course, become acquainted with the taste of ink. <laughs> I've never used a fountain pen, oh, ever. Mate, they're great. What's the fucking point, man? we got ballpoints in this century, Neil. Yeah, I know, but you can do italics and stuff. You can get all calligraphical, or whatever the word is. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't feel yeah, as grown okay. up until I got my Texas Instruments graphic calculator, so this is a big, big moment for me. No, man, I was happy with me Parker. Nicked out at WH Smith in Vicky Centre. <laughs> well, it was mod, wasn't it? You know, the arrow. Oh, yeah, of course. Jutting yeah. out of your pocket, man. <laughs> Taylor? I think I went to Butlin's on holiday in 1981. Oh, which one? Yeah, Minehead. Yeah, we were one of the last families to go to Butlins when it was still Butlins, I think, as opposed to a cultural abattoir, which it became <laughs> as early as the mid-80s, really. Uh, yeah, we went to Minehead. It was fucking brilliant. Me and my dad went on the monorail, Ooh. and my mum wouldn't go on it. Like, she what? thought it was going to come off the rails and <laughs> crash through the glass-windowed wall of the Princess Ballroom, like a, <laughs> some kind of working-class disaster movie. <laughs> 
Either that or she'd heard the word from Ogdenville and New mm. Haverbrook. Mm. Um, and and she, Skagness. Yeah, and she wasn't entirely foolish, as it was indeed closed in the 1990s after an accident during which six people received whiplash injuries. Ooh. Oh, the Bucklands monorail? I think one shunted another one up the back. Oh, yeah. fair dues. The year before, I went to Skegness Bucklands, fell in the boating lake in my brand new jam T-shirt. Yeah. But yeah, we went on the monorail, but we were really disappointed because when we got off, we realised we were still in Bucklands. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to take me all the way to the uh, pier in Skegge, right. but no, miles away. Yeah. No, I was just happy sitting in a slow-moving fibreglass shell 20 feet off the ground, looking down on crazy golf courses and those tiny roller coasters for five-year-olds. You know, it was a a heavy 1981 was a really grim year for me. It's one of my least favourite years, along with 1996 and 1975. My granddad, who was the the Rolling Stones fan, who was convinced that uh, all the Beatles were homosexuals, she died a few weeks previously. (laughs) And my grandpa was about to have a heart operation that could kill him, but it didn't, thank fuck. And three members Mm. of the family are going to be made unemployed in the space of a month. Mum from her job at a Mike Barlow-like children's clothing factory, Dad from his removal van firm, and me from the programme shop, which absolutely fucking broke my heart. So, yeah, not good times at all. I'm still basking in the joy of having my own dog, a Hot Rex, uh, but by this point, my sister's nicked him off me, and she and her mate have started dressing him up in baby clothes and putting him in a pram on his back and pushing him up and down the estate in an attempt to get the fishwives of the area tutting at two 11-year-old girls getting in the family way. And I'm not happy about that at all. It's most undignified. No. It's the sort of thing that will become an... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I put a stop to that very quickly because my sister had, like, a swimming costume and I put that on the dog and let him run out. And my sister's chasing him down the street and then he he just squats down and has a massive piss all over her clothes. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, that that got nipped right in the bud straight away. Mm-hmm. Oh, if those fishwives thought it was bad enough that two 11-year-old girls had got pregnant, wait till they looked in the pram. <laughs> Music-wise, oh, well, obviously I'm still an absolute well of sheep and I, I've been boring the fucking arse off everyone at school going on about how only the jam could get into the charts with a German import single. That's entertainment, which is still at number 36 in the charts and would have been number one if Polydor had released it properly, let me tell you, possibly. But, you know, also looking round me in disgust at my peers not being mods or rude boys anymore. Things are changing and I'm refusing to keep Mm. up with the rapid turnover of pop. And As a matter of Mm. fact, there was a poem in the letters page of a recent smash hits by Disillusioned X Mod that absolutely chimed with my state of mind at the time. And if you don't mind, chaps, I'd like to read it right now. Yeah. (laughs) We rose like lions to the sound of secret affair, yet we died... (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off, you're making this up. If you don't mind... (laughs) We rose like lions to the sound of secret affair, yet we died like sheep to the next fashion. Heroes we were in our two-tone tonic suits. Corner of the street we waited with our hair nice and neat. Along they came, our little modettes, proud and all they were. 
Yet as mods, <laughs> the big heroes gave it all up. So please, somebody <laughs> tell me, mod, what was it for? It's plaintive, that isn't it? Gets you yeah. right in the solar plexus. Is he suggesting that mod uh, means nothing unless everyone involved wore exactly the same clothes yeah. for the next forty years? Because you know, he was right, to be fair, it? it's uh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah, pop is turning over rapidly at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's yeah. the best thing about it. However bleak and unappealing the early 80s seem in retrospect and seemed at the time, yeah. because they fucking did. My God, for a kid. Mm. like it's, This isn't just an impression you mm. get looking back. It was yeah. like it at the time. It was You were in a world of wet concrete shopping centres, the, the same colour as the sky, you know, and Saturday mm. nights trying to stay awake. If you weren't at home watching Summertime Special, you were there, eyes streaming under a blanket of mm. indoor fag smoke in the pub or, or in the works club, waiting for the old bloke selling the young soldier to come around. <laughs> but the evening's biggest highlight. <laughs> so let's not think too fondly and imagine that stuff was too good. Mm. But... However grim it got, this was also a time when a small child would hear pop groups sing about being crushed by the wheels of industry yeah. and just take that on board. Woo woo. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, these people have been crushed by the wheels of industry. That's a shame. But <laughs> it meant that access was provided to that wider world of language and thought. Yes. And you saw these intriguing shapes in the distance and became familiar with the idea of artistic courage from a, an early age and you develop these high expectations of low culture mm. but it was always doomed because eventually things will follow the path of least resistance and ultimately if you're aiming your work at teenagers and trying to make money sooner or later you realize there's no room for this stuff mm. and you're better off sticking with the things teenagers are most likely to respond to competitive consumerism and over emotional self-obsession and these aren't new things these are the dark secrets behind every positive teenage craze but mm. you know they're just exploited more unapologetically as time goes on yeah it's not like i'm saying oh, i don't like pop music now you know i like pink panther s as much as anybody in beats by dre headphones and silver trainers you know probably because it sounds like music from 20 years ago mm. the last time i was paying attention it's just gloomy looking at so much mainstream pop now and getting that feeling off it you know that feeling of competitive consumerism mm. split along class lines so many pop songs now being either a whoop whoop hands in the air celebration of of young white tory privilege or a statement of intent to defeat and humiliate all you other bitches because for most unlucky people nowadays society means combat mm. and it's accurate and it's a fair reflection of the times. You can't complain about that. I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy songs boasting about having money, or unlike all you shit people with no money, mm. you know, or this kind of vague, indulgent, unreflective glumness as a kind of privileged lifestyle choice. You know, I, ooh, I'm in my feels, mm. as Ian Curtis once said, you know. <laughs> and nobody singing about being crushed by the wheels of industry no. or... Well, no industry anymore. Yeah, being crushed by the non-wheels of post-industrial society. Crushed by the van of Amazon. Oh. <laughs> 
but it wasn't at a distance. That's the thing. I mean, even as an eight-year-old, you know, you, you're basically talking about a year 81 where, you know, Ghost Town has been a number one. Yeah. You know, it's been in the charts. This stuff is close. It's not like, even as an eight-year-old, you'll like, have to start fucking reading the enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. This stuff is in the charts. Right. So yeah. that's really, really important. Oh, yeah. I would so much rather have been 16 in 1981 than 1988, which is when I was. <laughs> Except yeah. that I'd be <laughs> six years older now, which would possibly kill me. <laughs> well, chaps, I do believe that this is the moment that we retreat, if you will, to the chart music crap room, riffle through the boxes and pull out an issue of this week's music press. And this time we're going for the NME, March the 21st, 1981. Would you care to come with me on this journey? Yes. On the cover. A big rising sun over the enemy logo, a full-page image of Tokyo at night, and a lady of the ethnicity that gets Tony Blackbird all excited. <laughs> it could only be an examination of the Japanese music scene with a tasteful headline, Jap Payback, a nip into the 21st century. <sighs> In the news... The main story this week is that shooting has started on the BBC's new fantasy thriller Artemis 81, starring none other than Sting. He'll be playing Helith, a Danish angel of love, who has resolved to overthrow the forces of evil after the theft of the statue of Magog and the resultant disruption of cosmic forces by the powers of evil. Obviously, there's only one location suitable for such a tableau, the Kreitstram Museum. <laughs> Was he there with a pal called Ian? Sting arrived in a thin white vest and white tuxedo jacket and looked decidedly unhappy, posing for pictures in a battered old troop carrier, says the enemy. When asked why the fuck the BBC would want him in this and does he reckon he's an actor now, <laughs> Sting said, the production people said they wanted me because I'm a godlike figure. <laughs> I decided not to do the Bond film because it's too camp. I'd like to create a new stereotype where the entertainer can sing, play music and act. It hasn't been done very successfully, all meow toya. I've done a certain amount of role-playing in my life, not acting, yet. It's an ocean I've dipped my toe in, and until I'm swimming, I'm not calling myself an actor. <laughs> Hang on, Sting, when you bummed Paul Cook in the back of that car in the great rock and roll swindle, that was acting, wasn't it? <laughs> Wasn't it? <laughs> the Who are back with their new LP face dancers, uh. and they put on a lunchtime party to celebrate, and the music press were there to cram as many scotch eggs into their hypocritical, backstabbing moors before going back to the office and coating the album down. <laughs> Naturally, Pete Townsend was there, despite being spotted at the venue at 4am the night before, along with Paul Simonon and Topper Heedon from The Clash, Mike Reed, Annie Nightingale, John Walters and John Peel from Radio 1, Robert Powell from Jesus of Nazareth, and the 16 artists that The Who have commissioned to paint individual portraits of the band on the LP cover. 
What amazed us about the event was the music provided, reports the NME, most of which turned out to be from the likes of Spandau Bally and Steve Strange, and none at all from the actual album. Mm, I wonder why that would be. Yeah. Cloud as a silver line. <laughs> are Pink Floyd about to split up, or are they getting back on the road? The NME believe they have the answer with the headline, Floyd in June. Despite widespread speculation concerning a possible Pink Floyd split, the enemy understands that they'll be performing in Britain again before long. It was learned this week that they intend to play another season at London's Earl's Court, scene of their triumphant wall shows in 1980. They're expected to play a five-day stint at the 15,000-capacity venue, although it's not yet known if they will retain their wall-building set or come up with a revised act. Rumours that Floyd were about to split followed in the wake of the announcement last month of the collapse of their investment company, Norton Warburg. The band are said to have lost more than £1 million in the downfall, which came about after the company had invested in money in two disastrous films, a horse racing stable and other unusual projects. Sources close to the band suggest that they were on the verge of splitting, but they evidently decided to remain together and recoup some of their losses. The enemy turned out to be bang on the money, with the set of the wall tool being hoiked up one more time. Oh, God. Well, one bit of good news. What with Roger Waters being such an important, pioneering, inexhaustibly creative artist that'll be the last we ever see of the fucking wall live on stage thankfully (laughs) with the headline it's a mad 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 madness world we're informed that madness started work this week on their first full-length feature film take it or leave it which covers the period from 1976 to 1979 and documents the band's career from their first steps as musicians through their early gigs and towards their emergence into the big time. It's being shot entirely on location in Camden Town in Islington, directed by Stiff Records chief Dave Robinson. The film comes out in October. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. I've still not seen it. Me neither. That's shocking, isn't it? It's all right. My mate had it on video. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's a good film. Uh. Is it like as good as the Slade film? No, 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 no. No, it, because it was directed by Stiff Records chief Dave <laughs> Robinson. It's not a cinematic masterpiece, but they're surprisingly convincing as themselves younger. You know, getting beaten mm. up by skinheads and stuff. It's all right. Is it as good as Never Too Young to Rock? Yes. <laughs> in tour news on the road sooner, The Cure, White Snake, Stiff Little Fingers, The Stylistics, Rose Royce, Status Quo, The Selector, Adam and the Ants, Bow Wow Wow, Echo and the Bunnymen, Dex's Midnight Runners, Toya, Girl School, Motorhead, Japan, Gang of Four, and The Old Sailor. But it's bad news for British fans of Bruce Springsteen, not just because they don't live in America, but also because his first (laughs) UK tour since 1975 has been cancelled at the last minute, what with the boss being badly after playing 72 gigs in North America. Barbara March, Springsteen's manager, tells us that his exhaustion got so bad that he couldn't talk. 
The British gigs have been rearranged for April and May, and if fans are desperate to see him in action right now, they can make do with seeing him in the No Nukes film, which opens in the UK this week and features Springsteen, Graham Nash, Jackson Brown, Ralph Nader, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, James Taylor, Carly Simon, Bonnie Rayet, and the Doobie Brothers. Oh, welcome to the 80s, everyone. <laughs> Rather have nukes. one venue that springsteen won't be playing this summer is acklam hall on the west way and just as well if the news story acklam agro is anything to go by west london's acklam hall was pulverized last wednesday and seven people in hospital non-seriously following a viking-like invasion by a gang of locals on the bill were anti-establishment, last resorts and infra-riot who were tuning up backstage when the assault force landed. One eyewitness described the invaders as long-haired West London soccer supporters who mistakenly assumed the hall was packed with alien EastEnders. But the Met have logged it as a punk versus skinhead gang battle and say that a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old will shortly be charged with possessing offensive weapons. Oh dear. Mm, better times. In comings and goings this week, Adam and the Ants have parted company with bassist Kevin Moone, the soft boys have split up, with Robin Hitchcock promising to go solo, and Bow Wow Wow are being taken away from EMI by Malcolm McLaren. We've had to cancel the tour because EMI won't support us financially, claims Malk. The problem, as McLaren sees it, is EMI's reluctance to fork out for singer Alabella Lewin's GLC-ordained governess tutor, which has already delayed the tour for a week. When we put it to McLaren that the EMI contretemps maybe had something to do with the band stiffing out on the door, he replied, Nah! We sold out the rainbow, played a date in Manchester last week without a tutor present, I might add, and that sold out. Good business, mate. Taking a band on the road and that with a governess gets a bit pricey. EMI weren't prepared to cough up. General cowardice. They felt they were promoting something that they didn't believe in. It's not wholly different to what happened when the Sex Pistols were there. They operate at the level whereby they didn't move with the times. Move with the times. The mm. pro tip, Malk, if you're going to exploit an underage girl in order to present her as a transgressive symbol of antisocial polymorphously perverse granny worrying anarchy make sure you can afford to pay for her governess tutor before (laughs) you start over in new york the enemy's correspondent tantalizingly tells us of the rap party at the ritz which brought together the sugar hill gang grandmaster flash sequence spoonie g and the up-and-coming funky four plus one The advertised MC, popular R&B DJ Frankie Crocker, and the ventriloquist act that opened the show didn't go down too well. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But the wall-to-wall crowd got the message once Funky 4 Plus 1 struck up their big hit, rapping and rocking the house. Oh, God, I hope it was uh, Roger DeCourcy and Nookie Bear. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Nookie B, Taylor, come on. (laughs) (laughs) The Sugar Hill Gang headlined the show, their first New York appearance in over a year, with an unwieldy 10-piece band that often obscured their rap and flipped the rhythm. But the real show shopper turned out to be Grandmaster Flash, a DJ whose dexterity with two turntables has to be seen to be believed, and his rapping assistants, the Furious Five. Do you think Roderick and Emu would have gone down well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd have caused some beef, though, wouldn't he, Emu? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for a a time machine, though, to go back to that gig. Bloody hell. Oh, no. But ventriloquist, bad move. I mean, they should have got, um, I don't know, Octavio the Clown from Scarface. Terminator X was a brilliant ventriloquist, man. He he speaks with his hands, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) In killing music and its illegal news, Island Records are raising a lot of industry eyebrows with their determination to introduce the One Plus One cassette series in the US, where the likes of U2, Ultravox, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Cat Stevens, Grace Jones and Robert Palmer take up the full side of each tape, giving the purchase of the option to record what they like over one side or both in the case of you two <laughs> Ireland's US partner Warner Brothers has refused point blank to carry the line so Ireland is currently negotiating with American cassette manufacturers for a possible joint distribution deal mm, lower sound quality why don't they make mm. the tape 18,000 miles long <laughs> then you could record everything on it yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I wonder if the failure of this influenced, you know, Alternative Tentacles, Dead Kennedy's label. Because yeah. when they bought cassettes out, it did say on one side, home taping is killing record industry profits. We've left this side blank so you can help. <laughs> and um, yeah, it must have been an inspiration to them. Yeah. And underneath the headline, Clapton Ulcer, we learned that the Enoch of Rock has been forced to abandon his 56-date US tour with only nine shows played after collapsing with a perforated stomach ulcer. Yeah. Finally some good news. Interviews. In the thrill section this week, Chris Bone talks to Mute Records' newest signings, Depeche Mode, who have just put out their debut single, Dreaming of Me. Due to them being extremely shy lads, they brought along their producer, Daniel Miller, who they referred to as Uncle Daniel. (laughs) When asked about their switch from a more conventional guitar trio to an all-electronic lineup after buying their synths on the Never Never for 25 quid a month, Dave Gahan insists we didn't get into them just for the fashion, it just happens that way. Vince Clark, who feels a bit awkward that he's the only member of the band over 20, says it's strange that the kids who went to soul clubs are now moving over to this. Electronic pop is commercially viable now, whereas two years ago it wasn't. Gavin Martin nips over to what we used to call Holland to witness the first ever gig by the Bureau and finds out why they broke away from Dex's Midnight Runners. Kevin pushed all his ideas to the forefront and they weren't discussed with the band. We grew apart, says Jeff Bly in a chat before the gig. 
With taxes, we had made a very big promise and we brought a lot of responsibility on ourselves. We said we were going to be very genuine and we were going to do something to a lot of people. But it started to be more posturing than anything else. I'd really hate myself if I went on stage and made a total mess of it and I never did that once with Dex's. So when I was told you can't do that or you can't do this, I got really cross about it. Undoubtedly, notes Martin, this is a reference to Roland's decision to ban dope from tours. The interview with Archie Brown and Steve Spooner after the gig goes less well. Pursuing a line of questioning that would lead to the obvious ah but wasn't Kevin controlling you line I got short change from both interviewees with Steve saying he wanted to talk about the Bureau and Archie suspected me of being a hack merchant right away. The conversation continued to unwind lazily for a few minutes until, looking down, I realised Archie had switched off my tape recorder. What did you do that for, I ask, depressing the record button. Well, I think you're fucking about. I think you're asking funny questions. I'm stoned, man. I want to go to sleep. (laughs) An actual physical tussle ensued, with the vocalist attempting to wrest the machine and the cassette from my grasp. But eventually, following a long discourse on the role and function of the critic, the problem is sorted out. Phew. <laughs> Incidentally, the following evening, Archer, attributing his reservations and paranoia to the intake of a certain verdant oriental plant, intimates that he's knocking the habit on the head. <sighs> and then he said, Pull the blind, I'm closing down the bureau for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Do you record a sacrosanct, isn't it? No fucker touches that. No. That's never happened to me. But if that did happen to me, I'd just let the band know um, I'm going to make it all up then. Mm. You know, I mean, I did anyway. I quite often, to be honest with you, always (laughs) made them sound more interesting than they were. It'd be like going into an interview with them in the studio and like just going over to the guitars and Uh pick out smoke on the wall on them. (laughs) You just don't do that shit, man. That's their tool. And that record is your tool. Yeah, nobody ever dared to do that with me. Uh. But it's funny, isn't it? What a mess that sound. Yeah. How many long-suffering musicians who escape the bullying and hectoring of their cruel genius master (laughs) finally stumble free into the bright spring air and immediately fall to pieces. Mm. In an At Home with the Stars special, Nick Kent sits down with Phil Collins in his country home just outside of Guildford to talk about recent collaborations with John Martin, his new solo album Face Value and the runaway success of its lead-off single In the Air Tonight. Peter Gabriel banned all symbols from all Genesis sessions, but I played an active role in gaining that drum sound. Ahmed Ertegun actually assisted in the mixing of air, persuading me to place the drum break in exactly that place. It's a particular talent that he has, plus the fact that he's the guy who worked with Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding and therefore knows what it's about, and he was right. He got an immense amount of radio play from the very outset, which was ultimately the vital factor in his chart success. It tends to sound very strong on car radio, particularly when the drums break in. Mike Rutherford said that he likes it a lot, while Tony has, well, I've not felt any animosity. (laughs) 
They seem pleased. Oh, that's nice. Adrian Thrills has a sit-down with Jim Kerr and Charlie Burchill of Simple Minds, and they immediately bring up his review from a year ago, in which he dismissed the band as pretentious. We've used images in our songs, so we do run a giant risk of being labelled as pretentious, being Glasgow boys and singing about Europe and things like that. What do they want us to sing about? Football? Life in the Gorbals? Uh, hang on, hang on. The Gorbals is in mm, Europe. Yes. What's the problem? After that's out of the way, they start having a go at Midjour. That whole European thing has been used very wrongly just recently by people like Ultrabox in Vienna. It just looks really tacky, using the names of foreign people to impress people, <laughs> said the singer of Belfast Child. <laughs> Our last LP has got a lot of foreign imagery in it, but everything there did actually come from meeting and talking to people in Europe and drawing from that experience. People should define what they mean by realism before they start accusing us of pretension. I think we must be the first generation that hasn't seen either the draft or a war. Uh We haven't seen guns and uniforms, but when you do see it, even through a van window in Central Europe, how can it not affect you? Hang on, they're the first generation not to have been drafted or seen a war. Was he born in 1945? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the fact that the previous generation hadn't been in a war or done nothing National Service was often cited as a major reason for why the 60s turned out as it did. You must have missed Mm. that. But also, like, can he not count? (laughs) Fucking idiot. Have you ever had an interview where you've been pulled up for things you've said about bands and that? Yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, occasionally they used to send you to interview people that you'd already slagged off to have an argument with them. Mm. I don't do that anymore, I can tell you. No. Um, God, no. But it was good fun, yeah. yeah smash. Do you remember that group, Smash? Like, oh, yes. yeah, that was a, yeah, I remember that piece, Taylor. Yeah. It was, I mean, just like I was a kid when I did that. I don't imagine it would read very well now. But it was good fun. You just go there and just argue with someone. And, mm. yeah, they were quite nice about it as well, fair play. Yeah. There's still time for all of this to happen. Somebody out there commissioned me to interview Rick Witter or something. <laughs> yeah, turn up with a clothes peg on your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Under the headline, A Touch of Yen, the middle four pages are given over to Max Bell's jaunt to Japan to find out what's happening with the pop craze whack-a-mono. He tells us that while your stereotypical Japanese businessman likes either Enka, traditional over-sentimental Nippon music that sounds like the theme tune to the water margin, or the cabaret acts who supported the Beatles on their Japanese tours, such as the Blue Comets, the Tigers, or the Spiders, the kids are into Technipop. They play it in privacy on the Walkman, or out on the streets on their big portables, like the sharp black dudes in America. While Japan and Talking Heads are big gauging bands at the moment, along with Queen, Kiss, Cheap Trick and Rainbow, they're like the fucking Brummies of the Orient, aren't they? <laughs> the homegrown faves at the moment are Ekichi Zawa, their Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry rolled into one, along with Yellow Magic Orchestra, Southern All-Stars and an abominable pop group called Juicy Fruits. 
A local rockabilly band called The Channels would be even bigger than they already are if three of them hadn't been caught molesting 15-year-old girls. And warns us about Roosters, a biker band supported by Tokyo's chapter of the Hells Angels who tend to be well-versed in martial arts and like to kill policemen now and then. It was said to me many times in Japan that domestic groups were aware of their culture but realised the need to communicate in a common tongue. English, writes Bell. The greatest compliment I can pay the Japanese music scene, even after the most cursory visit, is that I wish I could speak Japanese. Oh, what a fucking jolly that was. Uh, oh, too right, yeah. No mention of a Nika, though. For shame. <laughs> <laughs> hey, lads, I just read Max's Japan piece. I think I've thought of the perfect headline. <laughs> Single reviews. In the chair this week is Paul Morley, who insists on using the word consume in all his subheads. His single of the week is Tell Me Easter's on Friday by The Associates. The Associates are perfectionists. This is the closest pop comes to the elusive dream of perfection. This is another sublime single in the year of the single. A simmering, sharply cut pattern. A stream of seduction. Music of dignity and destiny. A great amount of respect is at play here. Return it. Add a kiss. Don't miss. Meanwhile, Spandau Bally have put out a double A side, but Morley doesn't bother with the side the radio's playing, Muscle Band and Zeros in on Glow, which he likes. It shrivels the dry Journeys to Glory LP under its heat. It's such a vivid, vaulting chunk of growth, such a bursting tumble through the underground, such a dose of undaunted exertion. Of course the cover's daft, just like the LP, more comic than fascist. In fact, until I wrecked Glow, I'd have said Spandau were fat shit more than fascist. Now the only thing that's fat around here is the bass. Go! Don't miss out! Consume! School's out forever, gasps Morley as he gorges upon work by Bow Wow Wow. Sensationalist, irresponsible, distracting and fantastic. The moralists can steal themselves. The art matter realists can steal this. But it's a coat down for Eye of the Lens by Comzat Angels. The worst support act Susie and the Banshees ever had. I can't understand any dedication to the square Comsat Angels. Eye of the Lens is crushingly unimposing. The other three songs on this starchy showcase are tame, tediously fair-minded examples of a lukewarm new pop versatility. Scotland continue to hurl new bands over Hadrian's Wall and the latest at Aztec Camera, who have put out their debut single, just like gold, hey. and Morley reckons they're fucking bra. It's listlessly lovely with a strange, incomplete strength. These love songs that speak of sadness with undefiled integrity seem closer to the white music of Nick Drake and some John Martin than the lament dance music of Josie Kay or the irony pop of Postcard, The Sound of Young Scotland. 
Private themes and fairy tales, new romance and chilled distance. Aztec camera or a smooth and special taste, a smile on their face, a tear in their eye, between Vic Goddard and Cliff Richard. Young Marble Giants have released the Test Card EP. Six instrumentals in praise and celebration of mid-morning television and is praised by Morley for affectionately capturing the ageing formality of school's programmes, the unspoilt correctness of the links in between, the colourless compulsion and pale peace of the TV at that time. A very sane, confidently superficial souvenir Englishness you can trust. God, it's like I'm having phone sex with David Stubbs reading out this reviews page. <laughs> the thing is, though, I mean, you get the feel with Morley's I love Morley's mm. writing, and, and you get the feeling with it that he sent this through, right, and no editor fucked with it. Or if they did, it was probably just little chops here and there. Mm. The weird thing about doing the singles pages, whereas, like, with rev- I always found with live reviews, album reviews, I could kind of get away with most stuff. Um, mm. because it went to the reviews ed with singles pages it usually went through to the features ed which was a different kettle of fish so whenever I sent singles reviews through I'd always get this call because you know it'd be an all nighter and you'd get the call at nine in the morning mm. of like Neil this just won't do <laughs> you had to change loads what did you have to change Neil your opinion on the records or just cut the poncy shit out just yeah the, the, the kind of th- you know I mean I, I was just a big Chris Roberts Paul Morley head Mm. if you like and I try to do some of the stylistic things that Morley's doing with his writing you know you try and put a bit of that in yeah, and it'd always just get knocked back in my experience anyway but has it got a beat to it can you (laughs) tap a toe to it Neil that's what the kids want to know the thing is if Pricey was say I mean Pricey was reviews editor if I'd have sent through a singles page for him he would have just you know checked if it's under word count and and run with it because for some reason the singles were seen as a feature Mm. and consequently you got a different editorial head looking at it and they just you know they wanted rid of that kind of writing by the time I joined so yeah but the singles page is a fucking huge deal of a magazine isn't it it's usually one of the first things I turn to yeah in theory I mean by this point nobody gave a shit what we said anyway so (laughs) you could just publish anything it wouldn't make any difference (laughs) I got it though I got rung up at nine in the morning once like what you because I'd done a singles page and Soundgarden had made a comeback and it was just <laughs> dreary. I, I just did a review and just wrote shite garden, more like, <laughs> or, you know, some childish thing like that. And it was like, this is one of the biggest bands in the world. You can't say that. So, <laughs> so I had to rewrite it. And as I recall, the rewritten one said, it rocks <laughs> like a bed with someone fucking a corpse on it. Um, <laughs> and I think they probably would rather stuck with the original, but there you go. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Morley, even though sometimes it might seem a little bit much, and that did happen from time to time, Mm. you always get a little little shard of brilliance in everyone. Like Mm. he says, the associates put out Tell Me Easter's on Friday as a single, and it's mostly just a load of alliteration and, you know, funny words. But also he says there's a great deal of respect at play here, which is like a Mm. key thing. The associates put out Tell Me Easter's on Friday. They're showing you respect by doing that. Show Mm. some respect back to them. It's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, Morley can be flash, but there's heart. And I know that sounds corny, but there is. And you think he's on the side of the listener. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Joseph K's Sorry for Laughing sounds real wild and with a great 
colour cartoon cover is product to want. Fad Gadget's Make Room suggests that Depeche Mode will be the first mute boys to hit the hit parade, but Fad might be the first mutant to make the old grey whistle test. And Orange Juicer's poor old soul is no pips, no peel, no growl, no snarl, just juice. A bit of a fucking week for singles, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it just... Sadly, despite all this proto-new pop goodness being available, the mug masses are still queuing up, waiting for their thick maws to be filled with the sugary pap they mistakenly (laughs) crave, and Morley ploughs through them. Rationally speaking, I would detect that bad manners are running out of life, he says, in response to just a feeling. A Fool Like You by Yachts is dismissed as manger and Don't Panic by Liquid Gold, Shame by Racer, One to One by Joe Jackson and Saint Sand by B.A. Cunterson are all bunched together, all the better to take the critical shotgun too. Look, I know I go on, writes Morley, but the pop music of altered images, scars, associates, orange juice, cure, a certain ratio, etc., should be in the hip parade selling thousands and dislodging pop culture shapes every month in every way. Their music is relentless, consumed by energy, and produced to be lapped up by the masses not culted into corners. The pop that generally charts with obnoxious ease, like this mixed bag, is weary, though shrewd and studious. All those groups like Altered Images and Fire Engines want to force life, action and new style into the hip parade, the mobile militant charge that pop music should be. Look at what a fuss Adam's caused. That's because new pop consumers are essentially starved and cut off from new pop commotion. Liquid Gold, Racer, Joe Jackson, B.A. Cunterson. What a state. He'd be pleased to know that none of those songs got in the charts. Mm. And he signs off with Nigel Dixon's Thunderbird on Stiff Records. Nigel Dixon, ex-whirlwind on the limp label with a sad plop of neo-pop crushed under the weight of this week's singles. Anyone feel sad? And that's the way it is this week. Oh, nice Walter Cronkite reference. Well played, Mr. Morley. (laughs) In the album section, the main review this week is given over to He Who Dares Wins, the debut LP by Theatre of Eight, and Phil McNeil is not convinced that this time next year the band will be millionaires. Last year, a heroic gamble, the Iranian embassy siege, thrust the SAS into history and the hearts of the great British public. It is less likely that Theatre of Hate's heroic gamble will be similarly successful. TOH's Gamble involves releasing as their debut LP a £2.50 cassette recorded live show under the banner Beat the Bootleggers Bootleg. (laughs) Quite why Theatre of Hate should want to beat the bootleggers, thousands of whom are of course to be found jostling for space at every Theatre of Hate gig, is a mystery. More to the point, does the immediacy of this Leeds Warehouse set convey the passion of this inspiredly committed group? Or will the dull sound quality and warts aplenty prove to be a leaden albatross about the career of the most exciting new group in the country? 
stripped down, live. The rhythm emphasis often sounds horribly drab. Countered by Brandon's histrionics, they sometimes veer dangerously close to the clumsy starkness of such early 70s progressive rock drones as Van de Graaff Generator. One enemy writer assures me Theatre of Hate can't be any good because a friend of his knew Coke Brandon at school and he was a right prat. I can believe it. Brandon's the spunkiest, most self-important singer to emerge since the equally exciting, equally self-obsessed Kevin Rowland. Like Rowland, he tries to sing things he really shouldn't. Unlike Rowland, he doesn't always bring it off. The Who are back with their first new LP in three years, Face Dancers, but Gavin Martin's review cuts like a knife. (laughs) I remember around the time Who by Numbers was released having a lot of respect for Townsend. He was the only member of Rock's Babylonian hierarchy who seemed concerned about his mythical detachment from the listener, the lies he was living and the life he was lying about. But five years later, with the release of Face Dancers, my respect has been totally demolished, he writes, before decrying the album's directionless lyrics and bubble and squeak like musical mashing up and rehashing. For Pete's sake, how much longer are we going to have to endure your irrelevant fantasies? Concludes Martin, clearly trying to make a name for himself. <laughs> Motown are capitalising on the recent success of Diana Ross's collaboration with Chic and her forthcoming pissing off to RCA by putting out To Love Again, a compilation of remixes, movie soundtrack recordings and offcuts from the Diana LP. But to wrote a cock doesn't reckon it in the slightest it's bound to be forgotten before the last wine dies away this LP is Diana Ross's contribution to late night slush and a sure indication that she would benefit from any change that contract shifting might bring the BEF Ian Marsh and Martin Ware's Human League Heaven 17 Perineum have released their instrumental LP music for Stowaways, Stowaway being the original name for the Sony Walkman, and it makes Chris Bone want to strap on some roller boots and careen around a shopping centre in Milton Keynes. (laughs) The first purpose-built cassette for portable recorders from the enterprising British Electric Foundation is one of the few unself-conscious ambient electro-pop products yet made it's a wonderful new accessory to daily living one that should be used on buses or trains in the supermarket or at the laundrette as an accompaniment to household chores for anything as long as you're not standing still Unlike Eno, they recognise that ambient music for most people means tinny transistor radios, not long, vacuous instrumentals. Thus theirs is a synthesis of pop from Adamant and Gary Glitter to Kraftwerk and OMD, with the bonus that the 35 minutes of this cassette are far more consistent than the equivalent of any radio show. At £2 more than Bow Wow Wow's Your Cassette Pet, it comes pretty expensive. But if you're one of the lucky elite, like me, who can afford such luxuries as portable machines, then you're hardly likely to quibble. Oh, they're all cool with yeah. his big orange discs of foam over his ears. Yes. <laughs> 
There's a lot of tape stuff, isn't there? Yes. And and here, yeah. In the gig guide, well, David could have seen the Bell Stars at Dingwalls, the Grateful Dead at the Rainbow, Tom Waits pulling a three-night stint at the Victoria Apollo, the Buddy Rich Orchestra's week-long stand at Ronnie Scott's, Gene Pitney at Lewisham Concert Hall, Sugar Minot and David Rodigan at Hammersmith Palais, and wound up the week enjoying the Bush Tetras at Dingwalls, or altered images at the 100 Club, but probably didn't. Taylor could have got his brothel creepers on for stray cats at Birmingham Odeon, seen Rose Royce at the Odeon the night after that, and then followed it up with Steel Eye Span again at the Odeon before getting double denimed up for status quo's two nights at the NEC. They triple denimed, Al. Let's not forget the waistcoat. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hat tip to the very great Francis Ween, who reminded me of this for our social media a couple of weeks yeah. ago. The serious quo look was a denim three-piece suit mm. and ting. Oh. As I said at the time, I'm sure that if they'd been able to find some denim shoes, we might just <laughs> have witnessed the quadruple. No pop, no style. They're strictly rock. <laughs> yeah, probably not in diamond socks. No. <laughs> Sarah could have seen altered images at Leeds Fan Club, the teardrop explodes at Sheffield Unair, the selector at Chef Polly the following night, and finished her week at Doncaster Rotters, checking out Classics Nouveau and Theatre of Hate. Beat the bootleggers, Sarah. <laughs> Al could have basically set up camp in Rock City for the week and had a go at Pig's Eye Bingo with Splodgenessa Bands on Thursday, <laughs> Wasted Youth on Friday, The Selector on Saturday, Fuck All on Sunday and Monday, but come back hard for a night with Rose Royce on Tuesday. Neil could have seen Gino Washington at Warwick Unair, Victorian parents and human cabbages at Coventry's General Wolf, and fuck all else. And Simon could have seen Psycho Hamster at Cardiff South Glamorgan Institute, bombed it over the bridge to see Bar Wow Wow at Bristol Locarno, and checked out Elvis Costello and the attractions at Cardiff Top Rank. Oh, what a time to be alive! <laughs> In the letters page, Paul Denism, presumably Paul Denoyer using a demi-pseudonym, the reasons for which now are lost to the sands of time, is running gas bag this week. And the main topic of conversation is the announcement that the remaining members of Joy Division have returned as New Order and are already in the charts with their debut single, Ceremony, currently at number 34. All I know is that a man died, a man who alone with four other musicians laid down three killer singles and two classic albums, which personally left me devastated and which I suspect had a similar effect on a great many people, writes Philip Lansdale from Nutsford, Cheshire. Then tragically the man, a manic depressive, bid a final farewell. Gone forever, sadly missed, but no... I heard the news today. Oh, boy. I stood alone in the record shop. I heard a record. That guitar sound. The tingling cymbals. I had to get closer. I knew that sound. Tears filled my eyes. They were carrying on with a little help from their friends. 
I paid the man my money and made for the privacy of my own turntable. Oh, joy of joys, the only slab of vinyl worthy of a second listen since that single almost a year ago. Hmm. And that single... The birdie song by the tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, the band's new name has already raised hackles, but Kevin, a correspondent seemingly from nowhere, has already leapt in front of the critical gunfire in slow motion, screaming, No! <laughs> I interpret the name New Order as meaning joy after despair and suffering, he writes. The oh, that's all right, then. <laughs> <laughs> the oppressor's overthrown and the people free with fresh hope and an intense happiness. Bernard Albrecht, Stephen Morris, Gillian and Peter Hook seem to me to be among the least likely people in the universe to have fascist sympathies. Just listen to the music. I feel your concern is ill-founded. Forget, whilst thinking of New Order, the past of Nazi Europe. Their worlds apart. Concentrate on the present. Look to the future. Yeah. Yeah, Gillian's got a surname, yeah. you know, mate. Oh, this bloke. Yeah, it's actually an ancient symbol for the sun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, uh, check out the press ad for Bow Wow Wow's single work release oh, yeah. this week. Yeah. Don't know if it's in this NME, but it's in that week's record mirror, but probably not in Bravo on account of it being <laughs> against the law in that yes. country. As, yeah, it's a great big ancient symbol for the sun. Yes. Mm. Probably a witty reference to the title of the song being Work. Do you get it? In other fast chat news, the enemy did a feature on the anti-Nazi league the other week and the mewling, whining letters have piled in. Whether the anti-Nazi league like it or not, people have the right to hold and express whatever opinions they choose in a democratic society, <sighs> even if those views are in themselves undemocratic, says Dubone from Bristol. Do the League subscribe to the view of freedom of speech for everyone except the right? I am sometimes cynical enough to believe that the League is as odious as any political movement which helps to divide society while claiming to unite it. Or am I just another Nazi to be removed, says the Nazi twat. <laughs> so the enemy's at it again, pushing politics down our throats with promotional features on the anti-Nazi league. Before all you impressionable mix-up idiots out there going below the dust off your old ANL badges circa 1978, consider the following. Why does NME, while posing as a music paper, blandly include articles championing Marxism and Marxist leftist organisations amongst its musical features, thus suggesting that the two are inseparable and therefore we should subscribe to both? Asks non-aligned from Wolverhampton, who actually spent time writing a letter, putting a stamp on it and posting this shit. If NME really feels that his readers are unable to formulate opinions for the themselves without the aid of its propagandizing, it might at least do the honourable thing and present both sides of the argument. So go on, NME, give the National <laughs> Front the same opportunity to state their case, or are you afraid of being investigated by Mr. P. Haynes' intelligence, writes the Nazi yim-yam dipshit. I thought the Nazis already did state their case. Mm. 
pretty hard to forget, wasn't it? Although it's 1981, punk is not dead, and its exponents are still alive and moaning like fishwives. Barney Hoskins' write-up of the UK Subs Lyceum gig was pathetic, declares Pitts of South Norwood. Apart from being ignorant and moronic, I think old Barney must be blind and deaf. He writes, for some reason, Antipasti did not appear. This is remarkable, considering that everyone else at the Lyceum saw them. You couldn't miss them. The singer had bright red hair and they made quite a bit of noise. Yeah, which distinguishes them from all the other bands on that lineup, no doubt. Adam and the Ants were in full cry at the moment and are about to undertake a UK tour. But Dominic, of no fixed abode or hometown, reckons it's a swindle. So Adam is charging the kids three to four pounds to thank them for their wonderful support, he writes. I hope the kids tell Adam to fuck off. <laughs> if Sting had Debbie Harry's legs, little girls wouldn't stare at him. If Debbie Harry had Sting's tits, little boys wouldn't stare at her, writes Sarah Wiggins from London. Sexism is about stereotypes, male and female. Watch a few adverts. You'll find not nearly so many stereotype macho men as stereotype pretty women. That's the only reason more women than men fight sexism. They're stereotyped and picked on more often. Sexism stifles all of us, men and women. And although you may not have noticed it, the male stereotype is swinging from just muscle to muscly and pretty, which you may find harder to contend with, unless, of course, you are Sting. If Sting had Debbie Harry's tits, would you look at him? <laughs> Wait, you mean legs? No, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I'd always stare at Debbie Harry, but if Sting had Debbie Harry's tits, of course I'd stare at him with a kind of horrified curiosity. Yeah, and if Sting had Debbie Harry's legs, everyone would stare at him until he stowed them somewhere discreet. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's a letter from a frequent NME letters page correspondent of the era, a non-disillusioned Sharon from Ormskirk, Lancashire. I have better things to do than become enraged and upset at the flippant editing of my recent attack on your misplaced write-up slash down on crass, she writes in an open letter to the NME, and Andy Gill in particular. I've since been very busy fantasising violently about chopping your hands off with a slightly blunt hatchet, shoving your poison pens up your bottom, thus poking holes into your brain, mopping up my baby's diarrhoea accidents with the enemy, plastering it to the wall and bombarding it with rotten eggs rather than go and beat someone up. I sleep soundly with proof that you are very silly. May your ego burst, Andy Gill. I sincerely hope that you drown in your own vile goo. You'd also be as well to have a communal shit on blank paper. I don't think you're stupid. You seem quite intelligent, actually. But it's your warps, kinks and perversions that worry me. This correspondence is now closed, as are your eyes and 
is ooh. Sharon fancies Ande. Sharon fancies Ande. 58 pages, 30p. I never knew there was so much in it. It's not a bad issue, is it, of the enemy? I mean, no, and, and it sounds also, good. You know, they've just, not not just got rid, but Birchill's left in 1980, and I think Parsons has left in 79, and it's just a much better paper now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that last letter, those threats of violence, it was amazing what you could kind of get away with. I mean, I remember a letter from a guy called Gerpreet. That's all I kind of remember about it. But it was about a corner shot review I did. Mm. And it got printed on the letters page. And it, it basically said, you know, um, if I'm ever in the Midlands, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. It actually just <laughs> said that. Midlands is a big place, though, Neil. Yeah, true enough. He was from Leicester, but yeah, it was it was just a weird thing that you could just yeah, if you wanted to kill somebody back then, you could send a death threat into the music press and it'd get printed. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One start as they mean to go on by laying down a pile of open university knowledge bombs at six forty AM before closing down for an hour and five minutes. Then the channel leaps back into action with three hours and twenty minutes of schools and colleges ramble before closing down again for two minutes what's the point of closing down for two minutes man piss break Mm. get the potter's wheel on all them goldfish (laughs) then it's regional news in your area the midday news pebble mill at one bod you and me and a short shock shock of schools and colleges again Claire Rayner drops in on two people who have beaten their addictions to alcohol and tranquilizers in Claire Rayner's casebook. Then it's another close down, this time for 18 minutes. Then it's Play School, Secret Squirrel, Jack and Ore, Scooby and Scrappy Doo. Oh, fuck that. John Craven's News Round. And Sarah Green shows us how to make a card for Mother's Day. After Fred Bassett, it's the evening news, regional news in your area, nationwide, and then Prenderville, Han, Rod and Ingle show us some paint that can kill flies, onions that won't make you cry, and disco lighting for the living room in tomorrow's world. Oh, disco lights, Neil. <laughs> I, was just, I, I actually shivered when you read that, man. <laughs> it's weird looking back, isn't it, to think these people had to live in a world without paint that could kill flies. <laughs> Surely, though, if you got a fly and stuck it in a tin of paint, that wouldn't do much good, would it? (laughs) BBC Two goes three the hard way with borehole logging, seven card study, and Guernsey in another open university triforce, also at 6.40, and then closes down for three hours and five minutes. Then it's play school, then it's another close down, this time for two hours and 35 minutes, before they treat us to the final day of the Cheltenham Festival, including the Gold Cup, whatever that is, I don't fucking know, (laughs) fuck horse racing. I used to work in a bookies, man. It was the most mm. boring job ever. Non-stop. Seven fucking rows of tellies all showing fucking horse racing all day. Oh, Did you get fired for stealing a small pencil? <laughs> <laughs> then they closed down again for half an hour before springing back with more open university. Then it's King of the Rocket Men. And they're now into the final five minutes of It's a Grand Life. The 1953 film about post-war army life starring Frank Rand. Diana Dawes and the wrestler Dirty Jack Pie. ITV starts at half nine with two and a half hours of schools programmes. Then it's Gideon, Stepping Stones, The Sullivans, News at One and Regional News in Your Area. 
After the Southern TV soap that Taylor likes so much together, hey. it's Afternoon Plus, then a repeat of the racing game. The Dick Francis series where a retired jockey with a mangled up hand forms a private detective agency with a karate expert called Chico, <laughs> and off they go to investigate some horsey crimes. <laughs> this week's episode... Horse nap. <laughs> How did he get a mangled hand? A horse trod on it. Oh, uh, I thought he might have been feeding him a sugar lump or something. Uh, <laughs> he forgot to tuck his thumb in. A t- yes. <laughs> palm. That's followed by a repeat of Leave It to Charlie, the David Roper sitcom about an insurance agent in Lancashire. After Dr Snuggles and Bugs Bunny and friends were whipped over to Wembley Arena to see Great Britain take on Canada and the USSR in the Hunt Gymnastics International, followed by some good old American gloopiness in Little House on the Prairie. After the news at 5.45, Kevin Banks gives Iris Scott some mither and crossroads. Then it's regional news in your area. And they're 20 minutes into Amos and Mr. Wilkes going on holiday in Emmerdale Farm. Presumably not booking out an Airbnb for some chemsex, but you know, you never know. <laughs> I know you don't want to look at it again, but there was an open university thing you read out called Borehole. What was it called? Hang on. Um... <laughs> Borehole login. Oh, okay. I misheard you, sorry. I thought you said borehole loving. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> no, mate. Borehole loving was part of the Open University's Red Triangle series. <laughs> <laughs> well, chaps, I, I do believe this table is laid, and me, in my role as the mam of chart music, is about to stand on the doorstep and bellow at you to get in the house and tuck into this episode of Top of the Pops. So I think that now is the opportune moment to summon the pop-crazed youth of the world to reassemble tomorrow as we begin the slap-up feast of pop that is part two of episode 71 of Chart Music. So until then, thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Cheers. God bless you, Neil Kulkarne. Can't wait. My name's Al Needham. Stay Pop crazed. Sharp music.